us. And um, I don't know about you guys, but I had a really interesting 10 last days or so. Um, uh, you saw I put my hand up. I had, uh, it was wonderful. I had a birthday on, on Monday, my 28th birthday at last. You know, can't imagine how time flies, you know. Okay. But, uh, um, but I love birthdays. I don't know about you. I love birthdays. It's, it's just great to have, enough, have an opportunity to speak to everybody and everybody's wishes and everything. It's lovely. And um, a birthday to me is always a great opportunity for me to sort of take stock of where I am in my life, where, you know, where I've come from, where I'm going, where I, where I am, you know, and to, to approach the people I love and to hear what they say about me because it shouldn't always be good things, you know. It's uh, true friends and true family that love you. They don't always just say good things about you. So if you're surrounded by people who only ever say good things about you, you should be worried about it. And, um, but I, I, I love that. You know, it really brings me to a place where, where I sort of get to just take stock of where my life is. Um, and what made it even greater this year that it was on the Monday following Easter weekend, which I always think and experience and feel as the greatest time in the Christian calendar, um, to really focus on what Jesus did for us. Um, the fact that he laid down his life on the, on the cross, that he obviously had lived the life that you and I couldn't live, he died the death that we should have died, and then even greater than that on the Sunday to celebrate with his resurrection, the fact that we serve a God that's alive. He's not dead. He's no longer in the, in the grave. And that does something to me. It does something to me when I, when, I, when I think about that and I experience what Jesus did for me and what it means for my life because he rose again from the, from the dead. But then there was also a, a very sad event. Um, it, coincidentally, it's the, it's the person that I always blame for crying easily, so you must apologize if I, if I do um, get stuck a bit. Um, on Thursday, um, at the age of 91 years, my grandmother, my Avuzinha, um, who I've often spoken about in this church, she passed away after, after about a month on her on deathbed. Um, and it's, uh, it was an extremely sad moment because I had the amazing wonder of, of growing up um, and being in the house, essentially, and, and growing up in front of this, this grandmother, my Abuzinha, um, speaking Portuguese, and, um, and just, you know, what, thinking back about everything that she meant in my life. And um, we had the, the, the privilege to, to, she was, um, it was her funeral on, on Friday, which was a beautiful day in itself. But just like my birthday sort of forced me to take stock of where I am in my life and where I'm going, you can't be confronted by the death of a loved one, and that does not affect somehow the way you think about your own life, because you can't help but think about what that person's life meant. What did it mean to her, and what did it mean to the world, and what did it mean in, in my life? And so I had this wonderful Easter weekend celebrating the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but on either side of it having a birthday, and on the other side being confronted by the death of Mabuzina. And after these events, there was a question that rang in my head, especially after Easter weekend. And it's a, I believe it's a question that even if we don't, if we're not necessarily able to formulate it properly, there's, it's almost impossible to experience 
the greatness of Easter weekend without us asking the question of ourselves, what now? What now? If we know and experience the truth and the resurrection of the resur- uh, the, the Jesus dying for us on the cross and his being resurrection, what now? What does it mean in our lives? How does that affect our lives? How does it affect the way that we approach God? How does it affect the way that we approach the world outside of our own world? Because my experience is, and I don't know if your experience is the same, is that, you know, whether they are non-Christians, and there may be some of you today that are visiting us, and you may not necessarily be a Christian, and and that's great. Whether you're a non-Christian, you've got a certain philosophy about life. You've got a certain way of thinking about life and how you should go to life. You've got a certain set of rules. You may not have written them down, but there are certain principles by which we live for a certain reason. But even if you're a Christian, you've got a certain philosophy. And there's a certain way that we approach life. And there's a certain way that we want to go through life and that we want to experience. And it all comes back, and it all makes us ask this question, well, what now? Are we affected by these events in our lives, or, or do we remain unaffected by them? How does the fact that Jesus died for you, and that he rose again, affect your marriage? How does the fact that Jesus died and rose again, how does that affect my friendship? How does it affect the way we approach our studies? How does that affect the way we approach our careers? How does that approach change the way that we get up in the morning? How does that change or have an effect on the way that we go to bed at night? Does it have any effect at all? And it is interesting that throughout history, just like us, so many people have come to know and experience the wonder of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's affected their lives in one way or another, very often in an amazing, miraculous way initially, but then things sort of start to fizzle out. And I think we all know and have experienced something like this in our lives, where we are affected by the wonder of who God is and what He had done for us, and it affects our lives in a certain way, but then it somehow becomes almost powerless. It almost becomes, you know, normal, where our lives start to look a lot like the lives of other people we, we know, the lives around us. And it was no different to the different churches that, that, that the Bible was written to, the letters in the Bible were written to 2,000 years ago. And this morning, I want us to ask ourselves this question, what now? But answer it by having a look at what God's Word says about it. And we're going to look at a letter written by Paul, the second letter to the Corinthian church. And you can sort of page there in the meantime. It's going to be, be up. You know, this church was, was started by Paul. Paul, as a missionary, went to the, to the city of Corinth. And there he reached out to the people who did not believe in Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. And he told them, he gave them the good news of what Jesus had done for them. And their lives were miraculously changed, just like many of ours were. But then we see as we write these letters to the Corinthians that just like our lives, 
something went wrong in their lives. Because where they had started in a certain way, they sort of, you know, went off course a little bit. And Paul writes these letters to them, and we've got two of these letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but we know that there were at least three, probably four letters they had written to him, and he had to correct many of their beliefs and the way that they lived their lives because they have moved away from the fact that Jesus had died for them, that he was resurrected, and knowing the power that there is in that. And so Paul writes to them, and the portion that we're going to read this morning, 2 Corinthians 3, he's actually busy arguing a little bit. He's, 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 he's motivating a little bit. Because what had happened was there were these people that came to Corinth and Paul almost sarcastically refers to themselves to them as super apostles. Where they were saying, but Paul isn't a real apostle. Where are the letters of recommendation from Jerusalem? I mean, listen to him. He isn't even a great speaker. You know, he doesn't, you know, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't get money for what he does. You know, he's actually quite a poor apostle. And so what Paul does is he has to correct the way that they are thinking about their relationship with God and the way that they live their lives. And that's where we're going to start this morning. We look at 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to start reading at, at verse 4. And it says, you know, obviously, you know, they, they're saying, they're blaming him. They're saying, people are saying, Paul shouldn't listen. Uh, the people shouldn't listen to Paul. Now he's arguing and he says, is such, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, he says, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So there you know that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. 
so we can open your word and hear your words. And sometimes when we read it for the first time, might we stand out. So confusing, so much there. We almost battle about what you want to say to us. But thank you, Father, that we know that these aren't empty words. They aren't just words written down in a book, but it's you speaking to us today. And we're going to pray as we delve into this, Father, that you will open your word to us, Father. Not from me, from my words, but in the hearts of every person listening to us, Father. May we speak to them. May they encounter you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So don't worry, we're going to go through these verses, and um, it's all going to become much clearer as we go through it. So Paul starts off and he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Okay, so it's extremely important to immediately realize what is almost fundamental to what Paul is saying. He's saying that he has got a confidence that where does it come from? It says it comes, it is through Christ toward God. Through Christ toward God. Not just toward God, through Christ, toward God. He then goes on, he says, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, okay, to claim anything as coming from us. He's very careful to immediately point out, he says that although we have a confidence through Christ towards God, it is not something that comes out of us. It's not something that comes from me as Paul. Where does it come from? He says, um, but our sufficiency, the fact that he's enough, the fact that we are enough, is from God. The fact that you are sufficient is from God. We have a confidence through Christ to God, and the fact that you are sufficient is from God. Then he says, who has made us sufficient? He's made you sufficient. To do what? To be? He has made us sufficient to be ministers. Okay, Eugene said earlier, it is the job of the church, it is the work of the church to equip you for the work of ministry. Okay, it's not something that we thought up, not something that the church has got as a slogan, it's something that comes from the word of God. And here you see it again, it says that you are sufficient to be ministers. Of what? says of a new covenant new covenant and then he starts to explain this new covenant he says he says not of the letter but of the spirit not of the letter but of the spirit so he's aiming towards something he's saying is that there is this covenant that they know that he was talking about he was talking about the old covenant that was given to the israelites in the wilderness through Moses, and it is a covenant of what? It is a covenant of the letter. It is the law that was written down. It's a covenant of the letter, but it's not a covenant of the letter, but of the Spirit. So he says there's a new covenant that you're a minister of, and you're a minister of a covenant that's not the one of the letter, it's not the one of the law, but it is of the Spirit. And then he says something that's very important. He says the following, for the letter kills. For the letter kills. But the spirit gives life. You see, through all generations, 
from 2,000 years ago, when Jesus had just left the earth and gone to heaven, his followers had encountered a problem. It's a similar problem that you and I had. And that is the problem that where we start in a certain way once we meet Jesus, we start doing something differently. We start going back to what it is I can do. We start going back to the fact that I am important. The fact that my life means something. The fact that I have something to say. The fact that I can decide what I want to do. And the same problem that has existed for 2000 is still in your life and in my life today. And we all know, if you think about it, we all know that that way of life gives you a feeling of There's suddenly something that does not feel as alive in you as it once did. And that is something that Paul is addressing here. And he's saying, he's saying, for the letter killed the spirit that gives life. And every one of you, including me, if I would ask you, as Moses said and God said to the Israels, I put before you life. And death, you choose what would you choose. You would choose life. Everybody wants to live a life where you feel alive, that does not feel dead. But Paul goes into this much deeper. He says, he says now, and it's important to keep focusing on this death and life and the letter and the spirit. Now listen to what he says. He says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stones, you see there he's referring to the law carved in stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' Moses's face because of its glory, which was bring, being brought to an end. He's referring to something specifically that happens. He's referring to the fact that after Moses went up to God and onto the mountain for a second time, and the law was carved into these stones for a second time, he came back down from the mountain. And when he came back down from the mountain, he hadn't realized, and the Bible says he hadn't realized that his face was glowing. You see, because he had been in God's presence, because of what he had experienced, his face was glowing. And this speaks of a glory. It says that, that law, those letters that lead to death, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So you see how amazing the glory is that existed at that time, was that when Moses was exposed to this glory, his face was glowing from that glory. But that glory was too much for the Israelites to handle. So much so that Moses had to cover his face with a veil. And we're going to come back to this. But then it says in something interesting about this glory. It says this glory was coming to an end. It was being brought to an end. Then he says, will not the ministry of the Spirit, remember he's talking about the letter and the Spirit, and he says now if that glory is coming to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory then he goes on and he says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. See, now he's, he's calling it something different. Now he's calling it a ministry 
of condemnation. And we all know that, don't we? You know that when you look at those 612 laws, if you read through the Bible and you see all those laws and you compare your life to those laws, what is it that you feel? You feel condemned, don't you? You feel condemned because you know that you don't measure up. You know that this God that I want to serve, if you look at those laws, you see that everything that those laws expected of us is because of His character. We don't measure up, but He does. And what we know is, is that, and what we experience when we are confronted by that is this feeling of condemnation. But here's the good news. He says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So he says there's a ministry of condemnation that was being brought to an end, but now there is a different ministry, a ministry of righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness means to be in right standing with God. It means that where the law almost accused me and I feel condemned by it and I couldn't stand next to God, I was not in right standing with God. There's a ministry of righteousness, which says I am in right standing with God, so I no longer have to feel condemned, but I can stand next to God. I can be with Him. There's a difference. And He says the glory that came even from this ministry of condemnation is far exceeded by the glory that comes from the ministry of righteousness. And then He says, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. You see, that glory, that was so amazing that when Moses was in God's presence and he came down and his face was glowing so much so that the people that feel condemned had to hide from him and were afraid of him, he says, that glory, something happened to it. It was brought to an end. Why? He says, because of the glory that surpassed the second. And Paul is so careful to point out to us and to show you and say to you, you know what? There is a glory, a wonder, something amazing that is in store for you. And he's starting to hint at the fact that you can experience that glory. And he says, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. You see, that glory that he is speaking of is not something that's temporary. It's something that's permanent. So what now? And then he goes on to say, he says, since we have such a hope, not a hope in the ministry of the letter, of condemnation, of death, because we have such a hope, but in life, we are very bold. He says, because you have such a hope, a hope in a greater permanent glory, you can be very bold. Why can you be very bold? And what can you be very bold? How does this affect the way you live your life? He says, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. See almost the sadness of that. 
You see where Moses was the one that could go up to God and experience his glory. He had to put a veil over his face. Why? Because the Israelites could not face that glory. They could not experience that glory. They weren't able to experience that glory. And he says there's something different for you and for me. He says that we have such a hope. We can be very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. And he goes on to explain this. He says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is open the veil. Guys, it is the saddest thing about not only the lives of non-believers, but our lives as believers. The fact that there is something greater in store for me and for you if we keep going back to the Lord. Keep going back to the law. We keep going back to the fact that it's about us, about what we can do. We keep going back to the fact that I've got this list of things that I have to accomplish. I've got this list of things that I have to do. And if I do these things somehow that my life's going to be better, that I'm going to be a great, better person, that I'm going to be a better Christian, or that I'm going to be better at my religion, whatever it may be. And it is sad that even those of us that have experienced the truth and the wonder of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, realizing what he had done for us, keep going back to that. And we know it, that when we go back to it, and it's so easy to go back to it, and we do it all the time, that we feel shame. We don't experience glory. We don't experience says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their face. And so many times, when you read the Bible, it's like a veil over your heart. Where this remains something that's distant. Where we focus so much on what the things we want to do that we forget that this is about a person. This is about a relationship. He then goes on to say, he says, but when one turns to the law, that veil is removed. When one turns to the law, that veil is removed. You see, he's speaking to something where we don't turn to ourselves. We don't turn to our own abilities. We don't turn to the law, our little lists of things that we should be doing and not be doing. And he says, but when we turn to the Lord, that veil is removed. That which covers our hearts, that covers our faces, that is removed. And then he says something wonderful. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there he is. You see, where that letter of the law, our little list, our just trying to be better people brings with it a death and a condemnation and a just trying to stick to rules to impress people, impress ourselves or think we're going to impress God. He says that brings death. It makes us, it keeps us captive. But he says where the spirit of the Lord is, 
there is Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Listen to this. He goes, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. To truly understand these words, we have to understand what our story really is. We have to understand what our lives are truly about. We have to understand how our story and our lives and the lives of this Jesus, of this God, the Jesus that died for us, that rose again, how our lives are intertwined with his. And to be able to understand that we have to go right back to the start of our Bible. Because if we miss this, if we miss this, we miss our greatest purpose in life. We'll never be able to answer the question, what now? We'll never be able to live the life we have been called to live. We will never experience life if we don't understand this. If we go right back to the beginning of the Bible, we go to Genesis 1. In verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. Listen to that. God created you in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Listen to this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You have to know that the reason that you were created was to be an image bearer of God. You have to know that you aren't from some long descendant of apes who through evolution became a person that now you're just sort of stumbling through this world, you know, trying to make sense of it, you know, trying to do your part and fit into this, you know, community or wherever you were placed. You were created to be an image bearer of the Almighty God. You were created to be an image bearer of the one who lived the life that you couldn't live, who died the death that you should have died in your place and rose again. You were created in His image. And your purpose, your creation purpose, the reason you are here is to be an image bearer. And He blessed you. And He blessed them. In the beginning, that was his whole purpose. He blessed them and told them, multiply, spread across the earth. You see that it was God's plan from the outset that we would be image bearers, but that we wouldn't only be image bearers, that we wouldn't only reflect his glory, you know, in our little worlds, but that we would multiply and that we would spread and that the whole earth would be covered by his image bearers, that the whole earth would be uh, uh, covered 
by his glory and would reflect his glory. See, but the sad thing is, is that we took that away. We didn't want that. And we didn't live the life that was expected of us because we made it all about ourselves again, about what we wanted and our little list and what we thought was good for us and what we thought was good for the world and what we thought God wanted for us. And that is how we see this pattern in the Bible and then that part that I told you about earlier about Moses when you read in, in Exodus 34, Speaking about Moses that's coming down from the mountain, and it says, verse 29, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. And listen to this. What was the reaction of the people? Aaron and all the people of, the is of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. You see that the glory of God is so wonderful. The glory of the God is so amazing. Is that if we are in a place in our lives where we feel condemned, where we feel we are not worthy, and we are confronted by that glory and his holiness, our first reaction is to stay away from it. Because we're afraid of it. And that was the way that people have been living throughout the course of history. And God had something to say about that. God had something that he wanted to do about that. And then if you go right forward and you go back to the New Testament and you come to, the, to John. And John in chapter 1, he speaks of the following. He says, he talks about Jesus. He talks about the word that became flesh. And then from verse 12, he says the following. And listen to this. He says, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, if you received him, if you believe in his name, you've got a right to become a child of God, to be called a child of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And listen to verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, guys, where it was our created purpose to be image bearers, to be bearers of the glory of God. We walked away from that purpose. And the sad truth is, sad reality is, is that we often still walk away from that truth. But through Jesus' death and through his resurrection, a way was opened for us again. And now we can behold his glory again. And that's why when we come back to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I ask the question, what now? What now? You see, it is because of what Jesus had done 
the fact that he died to death that you and I should have died. And the fact that he rose again, proving the fact that he was God, that he opened a way for you and me to go back to our Father, to behold the glory of our Father. But not only that, but then with unveiled faces, reflecting that glory, living the life that God called us to live. And so the greater question for you and I this morning are two questions that I want to leave with you. And the first one is, what are you doing? How does your life look like when it comes to seeking the glory of God? Are you turning to the glory of God? Is that part of your life? turning to the glory of God. And then the second question is this. And what effect does that have in the way you reflect His glory into the world that you live in? How does it affect the way you live? Because it is not about us just doing a bunch of rules and sticking to a game plan of some sort. See, if we go and we turn to our Lord and we turn to our God and we experience His glory, we cannot but walk away from it unchanged. We are changed. And then we become, from that, image bearers, carriers of His glory. And we reflect to that to the world, not covered, but with unveiled faces so that people can experience the glory of God through us. And we carry that to a broken world. And what happens is, is that when they see and when they experience the glory of God through us, the veil is removed from their own hearts. And they too have an opportunity to become image bearers of God. And so our initial creative purpose is to cover the earth with the glory of God. Can we reach the world?